Thank you for singing tonight. I was, that was another one that I was excited to find. I wanted to sing that one because of what we've been considering the last few weeks in uh, Haggai. If you would turn to the book of Haggai, one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament. Really a song that we sing, we're singing about. Certainly it's reminiscent of Jesus' call to count the cost of being a disciple, but then taking up your cross, denying yourself, following him, even though the cost is high, and paying what you vowed. Certainly also reminiscent of giving yourself, like Paul writes in Romans, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is reasonable for us to do reasonable worship, but also puts us in mind, even as it's talking about some of the costs, some of what may stand in the way for of, of wholehearted commitment to the Lord as his people, things like home and family and friends, much like what the people of Israel were experiencing at this time. Just a quick review, if you weren't able to be with us last week, The book of Haggai is written by the prophet, by that name, who was ministering in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, uh, in the 400s BC, uh, 400s, no, 500s BC, excuse me, um, under the Persian Empire, the people of Israel had been exiled, taken out of the land, they had been brought back into the land. Uh, under the dictate of the Persian emperor, allowed to come back and actually even ordered by this unbelieving king to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And the people came back 70 years after God had sent them out of the land. A small remnant, just a fraction of those who had once populated uh, the city and the region, but they came back. And God intended that they would rebuild the temple and that Uh, temple worship would be reestablished and he would bring, much like he brought his people miraculously out of Egypt with a mighty hand and he was recognized throughout the whole earth as the God of Israel, the God of the Exodus. Much like that kind of seminal event in the Old Testament, so was to be God bringing back his people from the exile. I will bring you back from the ends of the earth, God says. He will do this. This is how he would rescue his people again after their sin. But they came back. They had this royal decree. They had some provision to build the second temple, and they quickly met opposition. And the temple building stopped. There were people who really had it out for them. They they secured permission from a new king who had come in to, to stop the work, and they came in and stopped them by force of arms, and the Jews stopped. They stopped the building of the temple. There was a, a, a tab, a, an altar there where they were offering some sacrifices, but no temple. The place that God would come to meet with his people, the, the sign of God's presence. And they left off the work for 20 years. So it had been nearly, if you do the math, nearly 100 years after they had been sent out of, the, out of the land. God intended that it would be 70. Now it's approaching 100. And God sees that They've, they've had their ease. The political climate in the day was really, there was a lot of change. 
you study uh, the just world history and the Persian Empire, you'll see some of this. It wasn't necessarily a friendly time to be undertaking this kind of project. They didn't have the walls of the city built. They couldn't really defend themselves. But these people had taken their ease. The political climate was a little more friendly. There was a little more stability. Their houses were built. And what hadn't they done? They hadn't finished obeying the Lord. They hadn't come back like God intended to rebuild the temple. And God's house was a ruin. If you look, we won't read the whole chapter. If you look in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5, God comes to them. Uh, excuse me, verse 3. He's kind of he's indicting them over an opinion that was prevalent among them. Thus says the Lord of hosts. God quotes them. This people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It's not time yet. They're kind of sticking their finger to the wind, and the political climate's not right. We don't have enough money. My house isn't ready. We don't have walls around the city. Whatever the excuse was, it's just not time. It's not time yet. But God's kind of accusing them, using their own words against them, And if you look in verse 4, what's the evidence that he brings? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Their houses were finished. Maybe they were even putting some, some extra things into it. They didn't really have a need to be working on their house anymore. Maybe you're one of these people that is just endlessly tinkering on your house. Uh, maybe if you see this word panel and you think of that old terrible-looking wood panel that you see in some places... Uh, it's actually, it's, you know, whatever you think about it. Um, I guess it's not so in style anymore. Maybe that's what I should say. Uh, that's not probably what he's talking about. He's probably talking about a roof on their houses. Their houses are finished. Maybe we're talking about these huge, awesome cedar panels that uh, Solomon might have had in his really uh, magnificent palaces, but probably not. But God brings the evidence against them. They're they're happy to dwell in their own house, while God's house is a shambles. It's in ruins. He brings the evidence against them, and then he points to some of the discipline that he had brought against them that should have tipped them off that something was wrong. Look at verse 5. Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there isn't enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there isn't enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. How's that for frustration? Nothing seems to be going well. The normal principles of sowing and reaping, you know, I work hard, I earn a paycheck. I sow a lot of seed, I reap a good crop. I eat a big meal, I'm satisfied. God is withholding those things from them. And God can do this. God is doing this. And he's pointing to this as evidence to them that they should have known that they were not right with God. He's directing them. He's, he's pointing out to them, rather, where they were wrong. And then we began to consider how God starts to direct them about their priorities and their activity. You see in verse 7, he says again, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, or it's the same word, the house, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. This is what's at stake, God's glory. When God's temple is in a ruin, God isn't being worshipped like he should be in Israel, 
with all of the, the, the rituals and rites that God intended to be going on there. And if he's not being worshipped in Israel, he's certainly not receiving glory anywhere else from anybody who's seeing what's going on here. Because what did God intend to do? He intended to bring people back from all the ends of the earth and be known as the God who brought his people back from exile. He redeemed them from the nations. And here they are with their dinky little foundation of a temple. What kind of God is that? God is not being glorified. God wants to be glorified as his people rebuild the temple in faith. And he's exposing really what is faithless in action. Not just in action, but it's, it's a matter of faith. They're not trusting God for this. They're not acting. They're not taking God's priorities as their own. And again, that's kind of catching us up to where we were. Again, God holds out for their inspection what has been going wrong and why it's been going wrong. If you look in verse 9, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. God explains why he has done what he has done. Their hearts are on the wrong thing. They have been experiencing great futility, he's saying. You look for much. You, you're turning toward it's the idea of turning. You're turning around looking for things, looking for increase, looking for prosperity. They were investing in their own comfort and their own safety. They were enriching themselves on crops or flocks or, or property or whatever it was. You're looking for much, is what he's saying. You're spending energy doing this, and it's coming too little. It's a trifle. It's something negligible. You're not getting returns on your investments, God is saying. They're checking their portfolio, and it never seems to be growing. It's like the children of Israel when they were in Egypt. They were spending all of their time and energy after this change from Pharaoh looking for straw in order to make bricks, and they didn't have enough time. They couldn't get enough. There's a lot of frustration and futility that they were experiencing. But not only that, they were also experiencing direct loss, God says, you brought it home to the place of your priority. You're trying to gather it into your dwelling. They actually obtained something, perhaps, and they brought it home, and God breathes on it. He blows it away like the chaff that it is. God, you could say, makes it sprout wings and fly off. Proverbs uses this language. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. They were setting their, their eyes on some other priority and God was making sure they couldn't get it. Maybe it's like when you go to the store for, you know, strawberries on sale. You get that nice carton and they look really good and then you stick them in the fridge and the next day you come and they're starting to go bad. It's disappointing. Now, all of this didn't come when it was happening with a big neon sign that said, God is doing this, right? It, it didn't happen that way, and that's why God is telling them. He says, behold. He's pointing it out to them. Look, you look for much, but behold. Pay attention. It's happening because I'm doing it. 
They were experiencing frustration and loss. And it was happening because of God's displeasure. Why? God asks, why? Have you ever been asked that? It's kind of a prod to your conscience. Why are you doing that? I've had a, uh, an 18, 19-month-old do that a few times. A stop, he realizes he's being addressed and he's thinking. Why? And God tells them why. Because of my house, which lies desolate. The reason is about houses. There's eight times that this exact word occurs in this, pa- in this chapter. God's house is a waste. It's still in ruins. It's deserted. It's shameful. It's not being used. It's empty. And it doesn't honor God there or anywhere. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while at the same time, each person rushes to his own house. There was a great deal of energy and excitement about personal dwellings, but there was a complete lack of interest in God's dwelling. They're in a big rush to get to their own homes and to get them completely set and in order, but they were complacent about the temple of God. And this left the worship of God as really a a small trickle, not really anything significant in the people's lives, a really shameful thing in Israel and in the known world. God wasn't exalted among these people. God wasn't exalted anywhere. And if we apply this, how God works, God will arrest the attention of his people, of us, if we set our sights on the wrong things. If we set our sights on on our own interests rather than on God's glory and honor, if I can be more specific. And really, that's a merciful thing for God to do, isn't it? God's God's stopping them from the road that they're on. God says, consider your ways. And it might not be immediately clear what's going on or how we've strayed. probably wasn't to the people of Israel. They probably needed to be told. But we should be sensitive if God does this and he's he's bringing us something that we can't figure out to get our attention. That should make us ask him, Lord, is there something I need to, to readjust, recalibrate in my life? So frustration or loss, does it get your attention? Does it make you wonder? Are you sensitive when God brings hardship? We know from the New Testament that, that God can bring hardship for a lot of reasons, certainly to strengthen our faith, but one of the reasons Scripture is very clear that God does this is to discipline us. And we're wise to always consider that as a possibility when God brings something like that into our lives and say, God, have I wandered? Is there something I need to to turn over to you? David really speaks to this in Psalm 119 in, in a series of verses. Psalm 119, verse 50, he says, This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. And then in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. A few verses later, he says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, 
that I may learn your statutes. And he says finally in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Any, any calamity, does it turn you to God? I've become pretty convinced through all that's gone on in the last few years that God, God is trying to get people's attention. Do you think that's what's happening? God is trying to get people's attention. And he definitely wants the attention of his own people. Are you giving it to him? So God explains why he's done what he's done. But then he also goes a bit further and reveals their their culpability in this. They're really experiencing the fruit of their own choice. In verse 10, Therefore, my house is in ruins while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. It was because of their choice that the the predictable regular rains weren't coming and the regular principles of sowing and reaping weren't operating. If you would turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 28, back towards the beginning. Deuteronomy 28, Moses is giving the law a second time. And part of the law are lots of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Very clear, very simple. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you shall be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Pestilence, verse 21, consumption, fever, inflammation, the sword, blight, mildew, verse 22. Verse 23, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. And the Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So back in Haggai, God is saying, you brought these covenant curses upon yourself. One of the largest truths in the Bible about God is that he is the covenant-keeping God. He makes covenant with his people. That's really what salvation is, is a promise. And with the people of Israel, it's a promise. And God promised, if you obey, I will bless you. But if you disobey, I promise I will do this. 
and they are reaping the consequences of their own ways. And God is saying, consider your ways. This is what you're reaping, and this is what you're beginning to sow. Do you want to stay on this path? Isn't this merciful of the Lord? Couldn't the Lord let them continue on it and let them reap the full fruit of what they're sowing right now in disobedience? Yes, he could, but he's gracious here. And what did God call it in Deuteronomy? You have abandoned me. If this is what it's coming to, if God is bringing these against them, you have abandoned me. It's abandonment. Lack of concern about the commands of God really is a a signpost on the path to rejecting God. That's what God is telling the people in Deuteronomy. And that's the path that they're on right now. What you've been doing, that was the signpost you passed a while ago, that you're on the path to rejecting me. You may have heard someone say, you can choose your actions, but you can't choose your consequences. You can choose your actions, but you can't choose your consequences. I heard a principal of a school say that, and I thought that was really good. He would say that to teenagers. Yeah, you can do whatever you want, but you can't choose what I'm going to do about it. And they would have to weigh, okay, how bad is it going to be? And that would catch them up short, and they would have to think. Hopefully it would make them choose to do the right thing. In a sense, these people are choosing their consequences, you could say that, but ones that they wouldn't have wanted. But the truth is, God causes most things in life to operate on this principle. It's just built into all of life that what you sow, you will reap. And what they were sowing was disregard for God. And what were they going to reap? It wasn't going to be good. So are you concerned about the commands of God? Do you give attention to the claims that God puts on your life or the the claims that Jesus Christ has as the Lord of you? Are you trying to retain that for yourself? I'm going to be my own master. I'm not going to turn this over to God. That's a certain kind of reaping, and there's culpability for that. That's dangerous. So God shows them how they are culpable for this. And then he demonstrates in verse 11 the, the extent of his judgment on them. He really has opposed them in every way. And I do want to get to the end and to the, the hopeful part of this, but he, he calls for a drought. God appointed the drought. And it's, it's a drought, and this is significant. Verse 11, verse, yeah, I called for a drought on the land, mountains, grain, wine, oil, Produce, men, cattle, all of your labor. This word drought is actually the, the, the noun of uh, the word that God used for his house, desolate. These are very closely linked. It's the noun and the adjective form. What God was doing was retributive. They left God's house a desolation. God made their land a desolation. This is how God judges it, was, it matched the crime. It was the rep- retribution of God on the sin of his people to break covenant with him. And he was opposing everything. And really, as we noticed, this was him keeping covenant with his people. So God is showing the people what he's been doing, how, how they really earned it by their actions. And he's interpreting, isn't he? He's interpreting providence for them. 
this is what's been going on. This is why it's happening. I am doing this. I am displeased with your current course of action. You need to change. And it helped. It had a great effect on these people because they were tender to the Lord. They didn't harden their hearts. Look at verse 12. As it were, they're lowering their heads in shame. They're turning from their wicked ways. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet. They heed God's rebuke in the fear of the Lord. Zerubbabel, Jehozadak, all the remnant, they all heard it. They all needed to respond And what did they do? They obeyed the voice of the Lord or Yahweh, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet as Yahweh, their God, had sent him. They heeded, is the idea of this word. Uh, the, the, The word obey in Scripture is very closely connected with the word for hear, in the sense that your mom may say to you, do you hear me? Have you ever heard that? Do you hear me? What's the, act, what's, the, what's the question? Not, not, is sound entering your ear? Is, is your ear functioning? No. Is your will attending to the words that I am saying to you? They obeyed. They heeded. And they heeded their God's voice. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, it says. That's exactly what God's people do. They heed God's voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They are led by the voice of God. And I I just lay, draw attention to this because scripture includes it and it's a note to, to make. They obey the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. They heeded God's message as delivered by the man commissioned by God to give it. Haggai was saying, thus says the Lord. Haggai's message was God's message. And if a man, sinful though he may be, brings God's message, to obey that is to obey God, as long as that message really is God's message. They were tender to God. And look at the end of verse 12. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. The people feared Yahweh. This was really in their hearts. This was in their hearts. They turned their foot away from evil. They bowed their heads to God. They said, God, you you are able to do these things. We believe that you have done these things. We're wrong. We don't have an excuse. This encounter with the priority of God puts them in awe of God. And it guided, really, the rest of their response. And this is really the, the wonderful thing about this account. The people obey. They fear the Lord. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. God is pleased with their obedience, and he assures them. He assures them of his presence with them. Haggai was authorized to say this. He wasn't making it up. It was directly from the heart of God to the people. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord. It's very clear. And what was the message? 
It was the promise of the blessed presence of God. That really is the greatest blessing to God's people, isn't it? It's the assurance of his presence. That's exactly what the temple, the temple symbolized. That was the place that God would meet with his people and the people would come and commune with God in their, in their sacrifices and feasts. This is the great hope of Israel. If you read, we won't turn there tonight, but Psalm 46, God is our refuge. He is with us. We should trust him. He protects us. He blesses us. He comforts us. This is the hope of God's people, that he is with them. Of course, this is the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, that's given to the Messiah. God with us. It's the hope of his people. And really, all of this was designed to show the people this principle, that the people of God have no blessing apart from the person of God. But with God, they have all the blessing they need, right? Do you see God's grace in this to to remind the people, to remind us of our need to be in fellowship with him in whatever way he sees fit? Because otherwise, we're, we're just sowing to our own way maybe falling in love with with the gifts rather than the giver. We want the blessing of God's presence, but we don't really care about God's presence itself. No, God is is gracious to keep us back from that. That's a temptation that lurks inside all of us. But God keeps them back from it. He's pleased. He assures them of his presence. And then, what's the first manifestation of the blessing of his presence? Look Look at verse 14. I am with you, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. I'm with you, God says. So Yahweh stirs them up. He He roused their spirit. He awakened them. He disturbed the spirit of these people. Like maybe your alarm clock shattered the peace of your afternoon nap, right? God is disturbing what was was peaceful. He put desire and activity and urgency where there was none. God graciously did this in the heart of his people as they responded to his word, as they feared his word and obeyed him. And apparently, every single person needed that. Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, all the remnant. Nobody was exempt from the failures God had indicted them over. But as they obeyed, no one was excluded from the work that God did in their hearts. Isn't that a blessing? That as they obeyed, as they took a step of faith, that the Lord helped them in the doing of it. And sometimes God does this. He, he waits until we act to honor him, and then he blesses us in the doing. He enables us in the doing. He gives us great energy and help and desire in doing his will. And that's God's grace. That's God's grace to us. So, are you waiting until God gives you a sign from heaven? Maybe they were looking for you know, the Messiah to come until they would build the temple. Who knows? 
Are you waiting on something miraculous to say, okay, yes, now is the time to obey? No. Have you considered that God might be waiting for you to act in obedience and belief and humble response to what he's actually revealed in his word you should do? I mentioned the verse this morning. For it is God who works in you, both to will, to desire, and to do of his good pleasure. It's a great blessing, one of the blessings of having the Holy Spirit within us. And that's what God does here. He stirs up their spirit to obey, and they do. And that really is in stark contrast to much of the rest of Israel's history, right? What were the Jews known for? For persecuting God's prophets. There are many prophets. If you read the rest of the prophets, many of them really had, uh, humanly speaking, miserable ministries. God even told some of them, you're going to preach this and the people aren't going to listen to you. God told them ahead of time, and he still had to do it. The prophets would come and say, thus says the Lord, you need to repent of your wickedness. And they say, you're not from God, we're going to kill you, we hate you. That's what the Jews did. They did it even in the New Testament. You read it in Paul. But what do they do here? This is, this is really the Lord making their heart tender to his word. Thus says the Lord, you're in the wrong. Your priorities are messed up. You need to give attention to my glory and my honor, my house. And the people say, yes, Lord, you're right. They're not hard-hearted. They don't harden their hearts against the word of God, against the prompting of God as his messenger, messenger brings the word. God is orienting them, is what he's doing. Orienting them to his glory, his priority. And here, this time in Israel's history, he's intending that the remnant would prize his presence among them. He wanted them to build the house so that his presence could be manifested there and his worship established, his covenant on display there in the center of their nation. He wanted them to live by faith and obedience, to rebuild his house. And we always need this this reorientation in our lives, to return to prioritize not our own kingdom building, not our own wealth gaining, but God's glory, God's evaluation of us, God's pleasure in our activity. We need to to orient ourselves to God's way of thinking. We often get captured by the world, don't we? And at times, like the people of Israel, we need an encounter with the priority of God. And if God sends that, like he did here, are you listening? Will you heed the word of God to give him glory as he deserves? May May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are gracious to keep us back from destroying ourselves. Certainly as you've rescued us from our sin in salvation, if you've done that, if you've opened our eyes and turned us to Jesus Christ in faith. But even as your children, often we go astray and start sowing to our flesh. And we deserve to reap from that corruption and heartbreak and the devastation that we deserve. But Lord, you discipline us and you spare us from everything that we should get, and you're gracious. Lord, everything that you do is right. Whatever you bring into our lives is right and good and appropriate for us.
and necessary for us. And I pray that we as your people would have tender hearts to give you glory, to respond to your word. We pray even this week that we would uh, glorify you in all that we do. Help us to, to walk with you and to have you first in our thoughts and our decisions and really be concerned about what you think of us because that's really what matters. Help us not to fear men but to fear you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you for your grace and your wisdom and how you do all things well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.